welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochulli. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I'd like to thank my contributors to the show, executive producer Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to this podcast, go to everythingimaginable2020.com and you'll find a whole bunch of information there. And you can donate time, you can donate money to help cover the cost of this podcast so I can keep it commercial free. And that would be awesome. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Frank Joseph. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've written over 20 books. (laughs) It's really tough to choose one to talk about. Um, But the one that that has jumped out to me, and it it seems like a lot of your books sort of branch off or or to it, is the Before Atlantis. Um, That's really an interesting topic, because one of the things I'm really fascinated with is the inaccuracies with human history. Um, So how did you research this book, and what have you discovered? Well, I began researching this book back in 1980, and I'm continuing my investigations all through these years. So we're talking about well over... 40 years now that I've been working on this. I travel around the world after I read as much as I could about this subject. And I travel to different places uh, in Europe and North Africa and across Polynesia and Asia and so forth to learn more. And my basic conclusions that I found out, to put everything in a nutshell, is that the education that we've been given is fundamentally wrong. We're told that the first... Uh, beginnings of civilization were in Mesopotamia, um, about 3,500 B.C., pushing it maybe 4,000 B.C., and that everything has been sort of uh, a chain reaction since that time, since in Mesopotamia the first city-states arose. Well, I found that that is correct only in a very narrow sense, that the civilizations have risen and fallen many times before, and that these civilizations are sometimes known and sometimes unknown. And uh, I think that it's important for us to understand our origins, because if we don't understand our past, we do not understand how we got to where we are now, and we will not understand where we are going. That's why our civilization is in such chaos now, because we do not have a more clear view of our beginnings that brought us to this point. So that's why history is important to to understand. Um, The place that's called Atlantis first appeared in the writings of Plato, the great Greek philosopher of the 4th century B.C. And before his time, it was known under various different names that were culturally inflected. But his story of Atlantis holds up extremely well, 
and it was based on his two dialogues in which he discusses Atlantis that I based a lot of my research. Right. Is there any con- connection between the Atlanteans and the Egyptians? Quite a bit. Um, and the way to to affirm that, to make it clear, is a study of ancient Egyptian history itself. There was a very great uh, Egyptian philosopher and historian. His name was Manetho, and he lived about 200 years before Christ. And he wrote a, a volume, a set of volumes, rather, on the early history, the origins of Egypt. Most of those volumes have been lost, but fragments survive, extensive fragments. And we understand from Manetho's work just where the Egyptians came from. Manetho is uh, only one source. Other important sources are some, another famous um, source would be the Book of the Dead. And in the Book of the Dead, there's also talk about these uh, the very earliest beginnings of Egyptian civilization. And in short, what these sources tell us from Manetho and the Book of the Dead, the pyramid texts and other documents that have come down to us, mostly only in sections, in fragments, is that before about 3,500 B.C., Egypt was populated by um, primitive people who had a very low level of material culture. Um, They were slowly improving themselves. They had some ideas of social organization, but as, as a whole, the inhabitants of the Nile Valley before 3500 BC were what we would call not a sophisticated people. But strangely enough, 3500 BC, there was a major change in the Nile Valley. A new people arrived out of nowhere. And these people were, had two names in the Egyptian um, sources. They traveled together. One of the people was called the Semsu Hur, or the followers of the god Horus. And the others were called the Mesentiu, or the Harpooners. And both of these people are described as sea peoples who came from the distant west in great fleets of ships. And when they settled in the Nile Valley, they transformed this uh, desert area into a high civilization overnight. And the reason they were able to do that was because they were already in possession of a high technology and the wherewithal to create a very high culture. They came from someplace else with this, uh, the seeds of civilization. There was a great uh, British um, archaeologist in the early 20th century. His name was Erdmann. And he wrote about this uh, Mm -hmm. uh, beginning of of the sea peoples that arrived in Egypt. He referred to them as the dynastic race. In other words, they created the first dynasties. Egypt's history begins with these people. Their story is really interesting because, according to Manetho and uh, the Book of the Dead, the leader of these early peoples, his name was Thout. 
T-H-A-U-T, I guess it would be in, in English. The ancient Greeks called him Thoth. The Romans referred to him as Mercury. The Greeks referred to him as Hermes. It's all the same character. Those are just different cultural inflections on the name of this man. And according to the Egyptian sources, Thoth and his followers, he was uh, a man. He was not a god to begin with. He was a man. And his followers lived on a place called Sekhret Aru, which means the field of reeds. And this field of reeds is described as a great island in the far west, the distant west. The reason why it was called a field of reeds is because it was that name signified a place of great learning. A reed was used as an ink pen in e ancient Egypt. When you wanted an ink pen, mm -hmm. you would go down to the Nile, and you, the Nile was filled on its shores with reeds, and you'd break one, and they were very brittle reeds. You'd break one off, and you'd sharpen the end, and you'd have a sharp point. Then they had, uh, they used ink, and they wrote with that. So if you have a field of reeds, that would be a place of great literacy, great learning. That is the, the name of this island, Sakhret Aru. And according to the Egyptian sources, the island suffered a natural catastrophe in which Thout led survivors from this catastrophe in a great fleet of ships. And the island of Sakhret Aru sank into the sea. Thout then arrived with his fleet of ships at the Nile Delta. And it was there that he had something called the Emerald Tablets. Mm -hmm. they, these are tablets that were not necessarily made out of emeralds. It's meant to uh, be understood that they were precious. And they were precious not because they were made out of uh, a gemstone. They were precious because of the high wisdom and knowledge that were written down. So as the keeper of these Emerald Tablets, Thout became the most important leader who brought civilization from the field of reeds to the Nile Valley, and there they uh, interacted with the natives of Egypt. They cooperated with them. They did not arrive as conquerors uh, or oppressors. They synthesized their gift of civilization with the local people, and that is the origins of Egypt. Egypt is a hybridization. It's a hybrid civilization between the local native peoples who lived in the Nile Valley for a very long time, many centuries, probably millennia, and then these new people that arrived in the middle of the fourth millennium BC. Now this story uh, sounds very similar to the basic story that we hear from Plato, in which he talks about a great island in the West, very high culture, great civilization, which also suffered a natural catastrophe and was destroyed, was utterly destroyed. But survivors uh, went to different parts of the world and spread the seeds of the uh, vanished Atlantean civilization as far as Mexico to the west, uh, east all through to uh, Western Europe to Western Italy. And that these civilizations, as we know them, these early Bronze Age civilizations, were in fact nothing more than the same as happened in Egypt. They were a synthesis of these newcomers who brought this high civilization 
with the local native people. And that's why we see commonalities between, for example, Egypt and Mexico. Both in Egypt and in Mexico, there are pyramids. But the pyramids are not identical. They're different. The reason why that is because when the Atlanteans went to Mexico and interacted in the Valley of Mexico with the native people there, they created a civilization which was part Atlantean and part native Mexican. The same thing took place in Egypt where you had the same synthesis where the Atlanteans brought their pyramidal technology and were able to have a hybrid civilization in the the Nile Valley that created also pyramids, but of a specific Egyptian type. So this is the basic uh, line that I've been following for a long time. And then before Atlantis, I've written, uh, I think, about seven or eight books uh, on Atlantis. I've written countless magazine articles on it and so forth. But I wanted to talk about, in this book, before Atlantis, the origins of this civilization. And not only the origins of this civilization, of the Atlantean civilization, but the origins of all human civilization. There have been terrific discoveries that have been made in archaeology and geology that have really altered, or should alter, our view of the past. Many of these discoveries are not well publicized. They're not well known. So I felt that in this book... I should act as a reporter, and I should share with my readers uh, some of these great discoveries that are being made right now that really do change our concept of the past. And I think I was able to trace back um, just about how far, what's the big change that took place that changed us from really nothing more than a a rather low-grade species that hadn't really done much into civilizers. And I think I was able to to see how we were able to make that transformation. That's what that's what before Atlantis is about. It's wow. about the very so, early origin. So where do you think it really all started before Atlantis? Well, I think that the real start Atlantis was, uh, in many regards, a later civilization. It was not one mm-hmm. of the very earliest. Uh, we don't know for sure even the names of some of these earlier ones. The Atlantean civilization appears to have begun sometime around 7,000 B.C. um, and then gradually over time uh, developed in this high culture. Now, that's interesting. We're talking about a a period of time not that long after the end of the last Ice Age. What I have learned about history, and, and this I find to be really incontestable, and that is... The relationship between human populations and geologic change. Right. In other words, people will do quite well in one area, but if the environment changes radically, they have to adapt to that change or leave or, or die. And when a whole species, a whole people are presented with that challenge, that really determines their subsequent history. And there have been many cases in the past where uh, society has developed and has become prosperous, but then all of a sudden Mother Nature pulls a fast one on them, and there's a major change that undermines their existence. They have to adapt to that or move elsewhere or perish. So I find that that has happened several times, more than several times in our past as a as a species. And the most important one of all, the most important 
decisive event in all human history took place 35,000 years ago. This is the the most seminal, important aspect that has made us what we are physically and what changed us from uh, an anthropoid uh, creature into a civilizer. And, and this is well known now, although it's, it's new. It's relatively new. It's only been known for about 25, maybe 30 years at most. And this is called the Great Genetic Bottleneck. And it refers to something that happened 35,000 years ago. Until 35,000 years ago, our species had been around for uh, almost 2 million years. And we had produced numerous subspecies and numerous races, different peoples. And these subspecies, these human subspecies, they would evolve and then they would die out and others would take their place. And this species achieved, in terms of a material culture, um, some important things. We learned how to use fire. Uh, that was important. We learned how to make stone tools. But after about, really about one and a half million years, that's about all we did. We did not really advance. We were at a kind of a, a plateau. So between that time of this bottleneck that I'm going to describe, 35,000 years ago, and maybe several hundred thousand years before that, human beings were on a kind of a evolutionary merry-go-round. We were not advancing as a species. We know now through the study of DNA that the world population 35,000 years ago was about 2 million. There were about 2 million human types. Now, some of them were Homo sapiens. Some of them were not. Um, what we are, we're called Homo sapiens sapiens. Homo sapiens hyphen sapiens. Mm -hmm. That is the term for modern man. Homo sapiens is a far more general term, not necessarily modern man. And there were many other species that could not even be included in Homo sapiens, that lived in a contemporary way with these other Homo sapiens until 35,000 years ago. Well, what happened 35,000 years ago? 35,000 years ago, the greatest volcanic explosion in all Earth's history, all Earth's known history, occurred in Indonesia. It was called, it's called Mount Toba today. It still exists. It's referred to actually as Lake Toba because mm -hmm. the center of this volcano is an enormous lake. It's now known that Mount Toba, in its volcanic eruption, far exceeded any other known eruption before or since. It was a killer eruption, a planet killer eruption. And when it exploded... It ejected so much material into our atmosphere that it created a global winter. Now, our species was not ad adapted to severe cold conditions, and so it virtually wiped us out. It did, in fact, wipe out a number of 
other species, animal species, on land and in the sea. They were exterminated. They were liquidated by this event. And our population, as a human species, went from 2 million Homo sapiens, or their equivalent, 2 million human beings, if you can imagine this, to 5,000 breeding pairs. In other words, there were about maybe 10,000 people that survived out of 2 million 35,000 years ago. This is now referred to as the genetic bottleneck. Now, our species at that time was on the razor's edge of extinction. We were a hair's breadth away of winking out of existence forever. But that event that reduced our population from 2 million to 10,000 people was the best thing that ever happened to us because only the strongest, the most adaptive, the healthiest, the most clever individuals were able to survive under those hideous conditions. And they were able to succeed in creating a, several societies mm-hmm. that were able to cooperate. Before that, it doesn't look like there was much for human society, more like uh, tribal existence. That mm-hmm. changed because in, if for, it was crystal clear to our ancestors that if they did not find some way to cooperate thoroughly and have divisions of labor and responsibilities, they would not survive. And most did not. By far, most did not survive. The other good thing that came out of that is yours and my immunity systems. Our superior immunity systems as a species derived directly from the Mount Toba explosion of 35,000 years ago. So we emerged from that smarter, more socially cooperative, and far more healthy. And then slowly over time, our numbers increased. But the species that came out of that bottleneck, that genetic bottleneck, was far superior to any human experiment that had taken place before. And that is the real origins of the beginnings of higher cultures and civilizations. Mm. And... uh, that's what I've traced in the book as, as clearly as I can. This is not theory. Uh, this is not something that someone has fantasized or made up. I provide uh, abundant source materials. I have tried. I'm, I'm completely different than some of these so-called scientists where they, they begin with a theory. They think something is a theory that needs to be uh, expanded. So they'll have a... They'll, position a theory, they'll posit a theory, and then they'll try to find information and proofs that will support it. I don't work like that at all. I I begin with no theories whatsoever, no opinions, nothing. I begin only with questions. And then I start collecting the facts. I start collecting the data. And only when I have enough data, enough facts, does something emerge? Do conclusions emerge from the data? That's the way I work it. Mm-hmm. And what I have done with this book, with Before Atlantis, is I've collected a huge amount of data. And only from this material does 
uh, a conclusion or several conclusions began to emerge. And one of those important conclusions was is that that event that took place 35,000 years ago is a line drawn in the sand. It is the event horizon of the human race, which determines, which determined the difference between a rather lackluster species before to where we became the great civilizers of the planet. So is this is that why we is that why we found like these you know like the Hobbit people and we found the Paracas skulls and all these different humans that we didn't know existed? That's part of it, especially uh, the, what they call the Hobbits or the Floriensis. These are these little people, uh, dwarfish people that uh, are in Indonesia, by the way. They're in that same area where this. Uh, Mount Toba events took place. But that you're right. That does explain why we are finding some remnants, like the Denisovians and so forth. These are all species that were already earmarked for extermination anyway, on their way out. And um, this is what our species was doing. We were creating one different human species after another and didn't work out. And they would fade out. Another one would come in and... We got off of that evolutionary merry-go-round when we survived Mount Toba. So the thing to learn from that is the great crisis, the great challenges that we have faced uh, make the difference between something lesser and something greater in us. Without those great challenges, we would have never become the civilized creature that we are today. And, right. um, so we would probably still be in hunter-gatherer mode if that hadn't happened? Well, these people that preceded that were hardly even hunter-gatherers. Um, they were... So I would say that human beings before 35,000 B.C. were scavengers. I don't think they, there's much to show that they were great hunters. To be a gatherer, that uh, suggests that you have some kind of an organized society. We were... We were not big on organized society until really <laughs> after 35,000. We weren't big on anything. You know, like we knew, some of us knew how to do fire, as I say, and had some crummy stone tools. It's interesting that those stone tools uh, that were invented, it, well, it would be relatively a great invention, but we didn't improve on them for like for 120,000 years. Imagine you're using the same flint. You're using the same basic, not even flint. No, you're using the basic naps that uh, you, for the last 120,000 years, that shows a people, a species that was stagnating. But after 35,000 uh, years ago, then you see the emergence of cultures. You see the emergence of uh, uh, material mastery of things, seafaring, uh, cooperation for uh, beginning of city-states, all this took a long time after 35,000 years ago, but nonetheless, we were on the right track. The other thing that's important, people sometimes say, well, if that's the case, how come no great civilization emerged right after 35,000 years ago? What they fail to realize is that a civilization entails hundreds of thousands or millions of people, and we had been reduced to the numbers of only 10,000 of us, so we had to regain our numbers again, and it takes time to bounce back out of something like that. And that also required a long time. So you don't make a civilization overnight. First of all, you survive, and that's going to take many generations, and then slowly you regain your population numbers, 
And then after you've reached a certain density and a certain location, then you can see the beginnings of high cultures. And we do. So what I'm saying is that human civilization does not begin only about 4,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. That was not the beginning at all. That was very, very late. The real beginnings are in Indonesia 35,000 years ago, and that took thousands of years after that, to be sure. But we arose, and we created great civilizations, and they lasted a long time, some of them. They did great things, and then things happened. They lost them. Mm -hmm. Do you think... um we're going to find some more evidence of these civilizations um, as we're making more discoveries in the Amazon and South America? Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. And, and that's great you bring up uh, about the Amazon. It was believed until very recently, like about, what, 10 or 15 years ago, that there was no trace of anything civilized in the Amazon rainforest whatsoever. Nothing of any archaeological value there. Even though a very brilliant and brave man by the name of Henry Fawcett, back in the 1920s, did some serious investigation in the Amazon and found important traces of high civilization there. He was not believed, uh, and his work was just uh, forgotten. Right. But now, uh, through the high technology of uh, uh, these uh, scans that are being able to done, LIDAR and mm -hmm. so forth like that, uh, we're able to see that, yes, there are these great... Uh, earthworks that are being found that were never suspected before, high work with irrigation that had nothing to do with the Incas, but something earlier. Um, it's just wonderful. I think the technology, as it's moving forward so quickly, is going to totally rewrite our concept of our origins, of our past as a species. There are great things that have been meant to be found yet, and there are being found. Absolutely. Do, do you think that there's any evidence of it even here in North America? Yes, there's abundance of high civilizations in America. Uh, one of the, the most fun books that I ever wrote that I enjoyed, if the thing had never gotten published, I would have been perfectly happy with it. It was just so much, it was so great putting it together. And it's called Advanced Civilizations of Prehistoric America. It's a pretty thick book, mm -hmm. and I outline five high civilizations that rose and fell in America long before we came along, long before the United States was even conceived. These civilizations achieved great things right here in our own continent. And so, yes, there were high, like one of the, the earliest one is referred to as the Adena. And the Adena was the civilization that started about 1,000 years before. Christ about 3,000 years ago. They built stone slabbed pyramids. They were terrific uh, astronomers. They incorporated all their astronomical knowledge in some of their structures. Uh, they were great people. There's a, a city in Louisiana called Poverty Point that is even older than the Adena. It was founded. Uh, yeah, Poverty Point is this advanced society. It was a huge city had upwards of 20,000 or more residents it dominated the Mississippi River in Louisiana northeastern Louisiana you can go and visit at this place today uh, it, it's in ruins but it's fair and uh, that civilization is now confidently uh, backdated to 
about 1,500 B.C. Now, what was going on in the rest of the world? 1,500 B.C. If you went over to Europe, 1,500 B.C., uh, the great uh, cultural gem of that time in the Aegean would have been the Minoan civilization. And it would have been a highlight of the, that period would have been a highlight of the Egyptian civilization. Great uh, the, uh, new kingdom would have been just about underway. Uh, Troy was a great power at that time. And yet right here in the United States, in Louisiana, Poverty Point was flourishing. It was a huge trade city uh, that also had astronomical orientations. They built a gigantic uh, earthwork in the shape of an eagle. Uh, Just terrific, uh, magnificent uh, achievement there. Wow, I'm going to have to go there and check that out. It is. And it's so huge that it was only found, first of all, from the air. Mm-hmm. There was uh, a pilot flying over in northeastern Louisiana back in the early 1950s. That's how recently this thing was even found. It was unsuspected that it even existed. And he's flying over, and he looked down, and he could see that the sunlight was just perfectly highlighting these concentric rings, beautifully organized, or just huge and so he thought, this looks like the remains of some really old place. And he alerted the archaeologists, and they've been doing work on it ever since. They've found wonderful things. Some of the things they found there, these people that crafted Poverty Point, made this huge city, they specialized in making small uh, objects out of uh, crystal, quartz crystal. They were magnificent carvers on a very small scale. Now that in- indicates that they also possess some kind of uh, fairly high level uh, tool making in order to work so finely in quartz crystal. Quartz crystal is quite hard. And they particularly like to create little images of owls. Now that's an interesting animal because the owl is it's an ar- a human archetype. Uh-huh. It, it's an archetype for wisdom. And why is the owl associated with wisdom? because it's able to see in the night, in the dark. In other words, it's able to see through the darkness of ignorance. So the, the concept of the owl being the symbol of wisdom fits in quite well with Poverty Point, which was made obviously by some very wise individuals who knew about astronomy, water management. Some of the, the trading routes established from Poverty Point are astounding. Yeah. They found trade goods at Poverty Point that go all the way to the Rocky Mountains, that uh, go I'm, all the way into the Caribbean. I'm looking at this picture of Poverty Point, and it shows like some mounds of concentric circles, which almost look like yeah. the Eye of Africa, which sort of fits the description of Atlantis. Well, the, the relationship between Poverty Point and Atlantis is very, very close. In fact, it's so close it's, it's obvious. Plato describes Atlantis as being a concentric arrangement of circles mm-hmm. alternating of land and water and that the sacred numbers of Atlantis, according to Plato, were five and six. Well, One, poverty two, three, point four, is five. exactly that. It, <laughs> that. You have the same arrangement of numbers five and six yeah. at poverty point and you have the arrangement of land rings and moats, water rings alternating, precisely the same. So I think that what we're seeing at Poverty Point were colonizers from Atlantis who came here and they, for the same way that we have a place called New York, 
from people who came from York mm-hmm. in England, and the same thing that happened in, in Poverty Point. Their their uh, choosing of make poverty of making Poverty Point on the Mississippi at that point is very makes a terrific amount of sense because they would be able to dominate and control trade on the Mississippi, which is exactly what that place was made for. And they were mostly uh, Poverty Point was mostly a commercial center. It was not a, a military outpost. Doesn't appear to have many military aspects to it at all. It was primarily commercial. That's, again, like Atlantis, which is described as wealthy uh, commercial metropolis. How could I have not known of this place? Most Americans have never heard of Poverty Point. Uh, that's because our educators are embarrassed by it. They don't like to discuss it because people ask questions. They say, well, we, we thought that uh, history didn't begin in America until Columbus discovered in 1492. And here we're finding this great city that was flourishing 1,500 years before Christ. Uh, Who built this? Too many embarrassing questions. So history and education are politics. And if you you promote the wrong politics, uh, you're going to be neglected at the least. And so that's why places like Poverty Point are not taught in school. And most people don't even know this magnificent place exists. Wow. Do you think it's possible, this comes from a story of this guy, G.E. Kincaid. He claims that he had found an Egyptian treasure in the Grand Canyon. Uh, That's a terrifically interesting story. That uh, I worked for a magazine called Ancient American, and we did our best to investigate that story and see if there was anything to it. And uh, we found out that uh, Kincaid, we, we learned a lot about this story. Kincaid was... Uh, one of the leading photogra- photographers of his time, a nature photography photographer. He was right along there with Ansel Adams. As a matter of fact, uh, Ansel Adams and Kincaid, G.E. Kincaid, were uh, colleagues. And uh, what, what the story of this is, is kind of interesting. I don't want to belabor it too long, but G.E. Kincaid was this professional nature photographer who was hired by um, the Smithsonian to do the first photographic survey of the Colorado River. And uh, so this is a pretty important guy. So what he did is he loaded up his his uh, raft. He had kind of a raft or boat. And he went out by himself with all this cumbersome photographic equipment. And he took these fabulous photographs of the, uh, Colum- of the Colorado River that had never been seen before. This is in uh, 1913, by the way. This is 1913. So he makes his survey, and he finally ends up in, um, oh, gosh, a major city now. For, uh, this case, I wasn't prepared to talk about this, so I, I kind of forgot some of the details on it. But, okay. Um, I outline it in my book called uh, Discovering the Mysteries of Ancient America. He's in there. So Kincaid, G.E. Kincaid, he brings his photographs to a major city. Uh, Phoenix. I think it was Phoenix, Arizona. That's where he ended up, so in Phoenix, Arizona. That's right. He was in Phoenix, Arizona, and he was interviewed by the newspapers. And they're congratulating him on this terrific uh, uh, expedition, this photographic expedition that he made. And he said, uh, well, he made a discovery there he did not expect. He saw a, um, a discolored formation. He describes it as some strangely discolored rock formation uh, high above the river. 
and it was like nothing he'd seen there before. He didn't know what it signified, so he stopped, he, he uh, docked his boat or he tied his boat up, and he went to investigate this uh, strange colored uh, thing. He thought he'd, he'd check it out first and then take a photograph of it if it turned out to be anything. So he's going up to see this discoloration on the side of this cliff when he notices that there's a huge flight of steps, stone steps. And he said he couldn't decide whether this was some natural formation or this was made. But the area he went through, by the way, I should tell you, the area he went through was so dangerous that the local Native American Indians would never go there. It was so, it was cursed for them. They would never go in there. So he was like <laughs> just about the first man, period, to go through this area. He's, he was a great explorer, this guy. And uh, like I said, he couldn't even, he tried to get some uh, uh, Native American Indians to come along with him as guides. No, they wouldn't go. It was taboo. So he's going through areas that nobody has seen. He sees this flight of steps, or what appears to be steps. So he runs up this flight of steps, and it opens up into a cave. And inside this cave is filled with mummified bodies and a shrine uh, to some kind of a god, a sculpted god figure. And another thing that looks like a barracks, another room. These are all subterranean uh, features. He sees what looks like a barracks, perhaps, um, another burial area for mummified remains. He had no idea what any of this was. He could not take photographs of it because his equipment was not built for taking interior shots. Mm -hmm. Photography in those days was not like today where you whip out your uh, cell phone and take some pictures. <laughs> uh, cameras were huge, boxy affairs, and you had film that would be only good for taking outdoor pictures. They didn't, he didn't have artificial light. wasn't anything right, so he couldn't photograph any of it. So he reported all this in the uh, Phoenix Gazette, which was and still is a major newspaper. And they interviewed him, and he talked all about this find that he did. And there's, we were able to track down the original copy of the Phoenix uh, Gazette from 1913 that had the cover story. Um, and there were a couple of follow-up articles. To make a very long story short, um, the uh, Smithsonian Institution uh, sent out a fellow by the name of Jameson. And Jameson was, I guess, uh, some pretty high character in the Smithsonian. And he brought with him a team from the Smithsonian. And so Kincaid brought them back to this cave with all this material in it. And they built over time, they were there for months, and they built over time a small railroad <laughs> track, a track, and they put these uh, ore carts on it, O-R-E, <clears throat> ore carts, and they filled these ore carts with artifacts. They just looted that cave six ways till Sunday. They cleaned it out. They took absolutely everything out of it. The only thing they didn't take out were the walls, and the walls were covered, according to Kincaid, the walls were covered in hieroglyphs just covered with hieroglyphs. They left those there. So Jameson just uh, took everything out of there, took it all out. All those um, finds that were put in the ore carts were put on pack mules, and the pack mules were brought to a railroad station, and the railroad cars took all the materials to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. 
And then that was it. <laughs> Another <laughs> word about it at all. Nothing. And so people were writing to the Phoenix Gazette from all over the world saying, well, what else do we learn about this? Well, everything was picked up by the Smithsonian and it's being uh, cataloged there. And we're told by the Smithsonian that this will be announced in the future. Well, the future came and went. <laughs> it sure did. <laughs> and people were, for generations, people kept wondering, where is this stuff? And even to this very day, the Smithsonian still gets calls and letters saying, where is this stuff? And what they will respond is, it never happened. We, we don't know what you're talking about. It was a hoax of some kind to make us look bad, apparently. <laughs> and uh, they said none of this exists. Mr. Oh, one of the things when we were doing our investigation of this, we talked to the Smithsonian, too. They said, what about this story? They said, oh, it's just a hoax. We don't have anything like that at all. And uh, I said, what about, what about uh, Dr. Jameson? Oh, he never existed. We have no records of a Mr. Jameson at all, ever working for us. He just was made up by some newspaper man. Really? So then we did some uh, digging ourselves. We found out we've got a number of articles by the same Dr. Jameson, strangely enough, who was a, uh, a, an archaeologist and an anthropologist, both archaeologist hyphen anthropologist for the Smithsonian, all the way through 1926. He began there about 1909. <laughs> so we, we caught the Smithsonian in a lie. Oh, we didn't know anything about him at all. He never existed. He was made up. Well, here this guy really existed, as it turns out. So we confronted the uh, Smithsonian. They said, hey, look, you told us that you never heard of the Smithsonian guy. He didn't exist. Here we have all these articles by this guy, right from the same time period. What do you say now? Well... We don't know anything about it. Goodbye. That was <laughs> <laughs> so. This gives you an idea, a very small idea about how our mm -hmm. history and archaeology are extremely political, and we've known nothing about it since then. Now, actually, I'm, I'm I'm planning a trip to go out there to actually to try to find it. Well, good luck because you might get arrested. That's what you I've need heard. Permits to go out there. You need permits to go out there. And if you don't have, and you try getting some of those permits, of course, they, they will say, they will tell you, well, it's very dangerous out there. Well, it is dangerous. It is. And the, that area where we think we know where the cave is, that area is off limits. The last time anybody went there was a husband and wife. This is back in the uh, mid-1990s. And we know these people. We talked to these people. They sounded totally credible. They were trying to find that. They found the place. It's completely uh, uh, closed up with an old rusty iron gate that has padlocks and chains in front of it. They were there. They're taking photographs. They said it's extremely remote. It is dangerous to go up there. They were out there for only about an hour try trying to get into this thing and looking at it when the helicopter came out of nowhere, a park helicopter, and told them they had to evacuate the area immediately. They did evacuate the area, and then uh, w when they went back to, I think, the main office there at the, in the Grand Canyon, they were not arrested, but they were detained. 
they were detained and told you can never go back there again. We, this is not allowed. No one is allowed to go back there. It's too dangerous. Too dangerous is their reasoning for it, but yet they were able to get there. Apparently, the helicopter got there within an hour. Mm-hmm. That's kind of strange. And the, a big, uh, the helicopter flew over, flew right at them, and there was a loudspeaker voice that came from the helicopter saying that this was that they were violating the park's uh, policy, and they had to leave or else they'd be arrested. And they were kind of arrested anyway. They were detained for about an hour. So much for a public park. <laughs> it's a public park, yeah. Well, it's a public park until you find the, the wrong stuff. Well, we can have a whole show, a very depressing show, about the Smithsonian Institution. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll old. have you on sometime with my friend Jared. Because oh, me and Jared, was, my friend Jared, were thinking about going out there to look for it. And you just give me some great information about, you know, that we didn't <laughs> know about it. Like, we heard about the permitting stuff because he's a friend of um, uh, Scott Walter from America oh, Unearthed. Yeah, yeah. And, and Scott tried to get there, too, and they stopped him. No. No, of course. No, they're not going to let you get out there. It's too hot. What would happen if that place was opened up? Let's say that, uh, you know, uh, what's the guy's name? Well, some newsman on the nightly news said, we have inside photographs of all these hieroglyphs on the inside of this place, and we know that it was all true, but it's been covered up for... Over a hundred years. Right. If the people who covered What's that it up. Do the Smithsonian? Yeah, but the people who covered The co- Smithsonian is a government institution. It's funded. It's completely mm-hmm. by the government, by taxpayers' money. And they could blame it all on some <laughs> dead guy. It would, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, we have to understand that we live in an age of lies. We live in an age of deception. <sighs> and, and if you're one of the keepers of the lies, you know, you're pretty paranoid about people blowing your cool, you know? So they're not going to. It's just not going to allow us. There's so much. I mean, uh, there's just so much. You, you could you could go on forever about all of the deception that we labor under. And if you begin to question any of the, the standard narrative, well, you're a kook or there's something wrong with you or you're a conspiracy theorist or something, you know. The only history to believe is official history. <laughs> you know, if you question official history, you you must be insane or you're wrong or you're trying to make us look bad, you know. <laughs> I'm not a historian. No. I don't have that, that background. You know, my, my background is entirely in journalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I apply all these questions to the journalistic criteria that I was taught when I went to school. And I don't have um, the kind of credentials that these archaeologists have, but that's great because I'm free to tell the truth. People can decide for themselves if it's real or not. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, one of the, one of the um, things about that story is they say that it happened on April 1st. It was an April Fool's joke. And we're talking, yeah, on, yeah. and, well, and, we're, today's and today's April 1st. April 1st. <laughs> yeah, today's April 1st, too. You know, I mean, does it mean everything we're saying is, oh, my. <laughs> A little synchronicity <laughs> there, though. <laughs> I don't remember all the dates on all this exactly, like say off the top of my head, because my little noodle here between my ears is not equipped to handle this. That's why I have to write it down. You know? Oh, me either. I've got all this stuff in my book, so it's all there. Oh, that's People great. are interested in that. 
But if something like that happens, you know, if they did find this cave and uh, it was was blown wide open and photographs would sh- show everything, and yes, it's all real, uh, it would completely change the narrative of this country. Completely. I mean, like, wow, there was this high civilization here. What happened to it? We're a high civilization, too. What's happening to us? Right. These are dangerous questions. That's why they're not asked. Interesting. <laughs> In fact, let's go that direction. Like, once the uh, Atlantis was formed, what happened to them afterwards? Like, ha- like what happened to all that technology? Well, what happened to the technology of Atlantis is that it wasn't all lost. It was Some of it was lost. Mm-hmm. A lot of it went to other countries. It's just like the Valley of Mexico. And there was another place where there was a material culture, a native material culture, which was of a far lower level than the high culture of the Atlanteans. And so when the Atlanteans brought their high technology and their learning and everything else, their applied sciences and all that, then the, the synthesis again took place. We see this happening in, in many, many places. And so the technology was reborn, as it were, in the Maya civilizations, even the uh-huh. Aztec civilization much later. So that's where these civilizations... And what's really cool about that is the Maya themselves and the Aztecs themselves and all these Mesoamerican peoples, they all talk about Atlantean origins. It's as clear as can possibly be. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of our talk here that the Egyptians said they came from a place called the Field of Reeds. How about that? The Field mm-hmm. of Reeds. And that this place was a place of high learning, and it sank into the sea, and that Thout and some of his followers sailed eastwards into the Mediterranean and landed in Egypt. Okay. On the other side of the world, the Aztecs claimed that their ancestors came from an island in the sea that sank, that was suffered a major catastrophe, and they were led, their ancestors were led by a fellow by the name of Quetzalcoatl, or the Feathered Serpent. Right. And when he arrived on the shores of Mexico, this is what they're saying, I'm not making this, this is what the Aztecs said. You can read this in a in a Maya book called the Popol Vuh, or the Book of Council. They talk all about this. And so when Quetzalcoatl, or the Feathered Serpent, came from this island of this this high civilization that had been obliterated by a natural catastrophe. They landed on the shores of Mexico, and they interacted with the native people, and they created the basis of Mesoamerican civilization. But that story is so close to the Egyptian, but it gets even closer (laughs) when you find out the name that the... In, in the original Tenocha, that's the language that was spoken by the Aztecs, the Aztecs said the name of that island that sank, from which their ancestors came, was called Atlan, A-Z-T-L-A-N. The name in Tenocha, the language of the Aztecs for Atlan, means field of reeds. It's the exact same name that the Egyptians, who had nothing whatsoever to do with the Aztecs, the Egyptians, they phased out of existence hundreds and hundreds of years before the Aztecs that came into play. But yet they still have this commonality where their ancestors, they say, came from this sunken land. And it was even called the same name, Field of Reeds. And it means the same thing in the Aztec world as it does in the Egyptian world. 
reeds were used as ink pens, the same thing as in Egypt. So these commonalities cannot be denied, and uh, they... If you cross-reference enough of them, that's you know I've, I've written like what 14 books or whatever on on Atlantis, and these books are mostly cross-referencing things like that. And you cross-reference and cross-reference, then that's how you find out the truth. That's what we were taught when I went to journalism school. If you want to determine the truth of something, you set up a reference, a cross-reference, and the more cross-references you have to your question the clearer your answer will be. Well, I've applied that to the study of uh, prehistory, and I think that the cross-references for Atlantis are so strong that in a court of law, you could bring in a guilty verdict on its former existence. I would be very confident that I could do that. Of course, we're wow. missing the body. We're missing the body. It doesn't. That's incredible, that though. It sounds like, holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's so mind it's blowing that 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 this all this evidence and documentation exists, and it's just ignored. It's ignored, and the people that try to bring it out are denigrated. You, know, you have to count on that, but uh, who cares? The important thing is that you get it out, and that people like yourself uh, can discuss it, and discuss uh. it, and learn from it, and, and make your own contributions to it. And you're making a contribution right now because we're discussing it for others to hear. So that's important. We're all we all have pieces of the puzzle, and mm-hmm. when we come together, more of that puzzle becomes clearer. Have Have you heard about the pyramid that is discovered in the Florida Everglades? No, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I've not heard of anything like that in the Florida Everglades. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty uh, recent. That it, that's got to be pretty recent. If there is a pyramid in the Everglades, it's got to be really old <laughs> because it's got to have been built before there were Everglades there. That's the only thing, the only conclusion I could draw. But no, I'm sorry, I, I can't have anything to offer on that. I've, yeah. I've not heard that. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's like what makes me think about that is that, that it's real is because. I mean, it probably wouldn't have been hard for them to travel across the Gulf of Mexico or even around the outskirts of it to get there. Mm-hmm. So, Well, there are many great... Th- Actually, I, I wouldn't be all that... I would be wonderfully surprised if that turned out to be true, uh, but it isn't all that inconceivable, put it that way, because there have been fabulous things found in Florida. Uh, there's a place called Port Charlotte, uh, in um, on, the, on the west coast of Florida, if I remember correctly, it's not that far from Tampa. And aerial surveys of Port Charlotte show the remains of the largest known uh, uh, effigy on Earth. It's gigantic. It is the representation of either a spider or a crab, and it is made out of literally millions of uh, clamshells, literally millions of clamshells. You cannot see it from the from ground uh-huh. level at all. But if you fly over it at several thousand feet, there it is. Wow. And it's, it's unmistakable. It's unmistakable. It where still is, exists. Where is it at? This is on the uh, northwest coast of Florida by Tampa. The place is called Port Charlotte. 
it's 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 adjoining a budding Port Charlotte, and luckily there's been no development down there to, to the extent that it's destroyed this thing yet. And that was found by a Chicago archaeologist who is actually a mainstream archaeologist. Can you believe that? No. Uh, and he was, he's still, uh, as far as I know, he was completely against uh, the idea of Atlantis or anything like that. But he, he, he was able to verify that this was uh, and is a, the largest man-made effigy uh, on the planet. I forgot how large it is, but it's, it's immensely huge. So, and it's right there on the, on the sea. So whoever did that, uh, they were uh, highly organized people, that's for sure. They were a great high culture. So if they could do something like that, well, why not a pyramid in the Everglades? Wow, and that's kind of similar to like the NAS. Oh, I always forget it's the not name. like the, NASCA in a way yeah. because you do, of course, have a representation of a spider in NASCA. You know that thing is like eighty feet long, uh, but even that thing is pales in comparison to this gigantic spider or crab. They're not quite sure. Uh, that's portrayed on the seacoast of uh, northwest Florida. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah, yeah he sh- I, I've seen photographs that he showed of it. I attended uh, one of his presentations quite a few years ago, and it was just it's remarkable. Beautiful. I'm trying to find a picture of it online, but I can't find one. I wonder why. Picture of what? I'm trying to find a picture of it online, and I can't. I wonder why. Oh, no. I, I, it's called the Porsche. <laughs> well, if you work at it, it's called the Port Charlotte uh, Spider or the Port Charlotte Crab. And I can't remember the name of the archaeologist, but he was a Chicago archaeologist. Was he a Chicago archaeologist? Yeah, he was a Chicago archaeologist. Yeah, yeah all, all I'm getting is like the crabs that you eat. <laughs> no, no. It probably would take a little uh, poking around, but it's it's terrific. Interesting. Yeah. I believe that is there. But Am- that was in Florida, mm-hmm. and there have been other things, great things found in Florida, too. It's really incredible. wonderful stuff. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> my, blind, my brain is just spinning with this whole yeah. connection. There's, there's a lot to it. <laughs> How about Lemuria? Well, I think that Lemuria was a outgrowth of this um, event that we spoke of at the beginning of the conversation, and that is this eruption of Mount Toba 35,000 years ago. Um, it looks as though Lemuria might have been a direct consequence of that uh, event. And I think that it's conceivable. I, I may be wrong because we're really looking very far back in time, but it would seem that the earliest high civilization ever to evolve is. Uh, the high civilization of Lemuria, which was located in the Pacific. Lemuria was not a place so much as it was a culture spread over a number of places. What I mean by that is that you had one people who inhabited a number of island archipelagos through the Pacific, through the South and Central Pacific. It was spread over, so it wasn't like a lost continent or a giant island or anything like that. Mm Mm-hmm. It was just a culture or a people, and they seem to have evolved. What I mean by that, so they've socially evolved um, to create this high society that uh, that evolved uh, over time, and they called it Lemuria. Uh, there are many. I, I wrote a book on it, which is called "The Lost Civilization of Lemuria." What and, continent uh, do you think I it was on? 
Pardon me? What continent do you think it was on? Well, it wasn't on a continent. Was, I think it was, like I said, like I say, it was spread across these island arcs. Mm-hmm. There was archipelagos. And, uh, well, the most famous place that they inhabited was Easter Island. That's the most famous, okay. but that's not their only place. Um, Easter Island is important because the native people of Easter Island, um, they preserved their history really beautifully, and they talked about how before they arrived, um, before the Polynesians arrived, that Easter Island was already inhabited by another people who had uh, left their former homeland and created what they called Rapa Nui. Easter Island, that's a modern European name, uh, came about in 1721 when a uh, an admiral for the Dutch Navy, his name was Rogavine, he uh, quote-unquote discovered Easter Island on uh, Easter Sunday in 1721, and so he called it uh, Easter Island. Uh, but before that, it was known to the native people by very, several various names, Rapa Nui, which means the, uh, the, the land of the sun. Yeah, it's interesting. Here they use the word, their word for the sun god was Ra, the same as in, in Egypt, kind of interesting. And it was also known as uh, Tepito Tehenua, which means the navel of the world. That seems to be like a rather of a title for this place rather than its actual name. So there are uh, a lot of things that show that Easter Island civilization was probably the last, among the last gasps of uh, Lemurian civilization. Hmm. Do you think there was a another civilization off the coast of Cuba that's now underwater? Because you've found like a lot of stuff that looks like there was something there. Well, the trouble with that was uh, the uh, woman and her husband, uh, I think her name was Zelinsky, if I'm not mistaken. She and her husband were uh, hired by the Castro government um, about 20-some years ago, about 25 years ago. They had... um, high-resolution sonar equipment. And uh, the Castro government hired them, not for any archaeological reasons. Castro government couldn't care less about archaeology. They were hired by the Castro government to find uh, underwater oil deposits where they could do some Mm deep-sea drilling. And so the Zelenskys went around the, the coastal waters of Cuba looking for these oil deposits, And instead, they found what they said was this uh, pyramidal complex. It looked man-made. It looked something like the Maya. And so uh, several photographs of their sonar readouts were published, and they're still available, as a matter of fact. They got into some kind of trouble. We have no idea what this was, but they got into some kind of trouble with the Castro government. Getting in trouble with the communist government is probably the easiest thing in the world to do. Say the wrong thing or whatever, you know. and uh, so they had to get out of there. And uh, Zelensky and her husband just—they went back to Canada. That's where they were from originally, and they just vanished. Nobody has seen hide nor hair of them since. They don't know. No one knows where they are, how to contact them. Nothing. And so that discovery has sort of been in limbo ever since. We're talking around the turn of the century, like about 2000, something like that, when they finally left. 
So I don't know what to make of that. Mm-hmm. There's some trouble uh, trying to accept that, uh, accept their discovery as real because it's extremely deep. I think it's like 7,000 feet deep, something like, if I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh. And what, what's the trouble with that is, okay, let's say that this pyramid or whatever it was was made by somebody a long time ago. How did it get to an such perfect condition at the bottom of the sea, about 7,000 feet down. I mean, you know, certainly things collapse and there are geological processes, but they're very violent and highly destructive. It's not like taking an elevator straight down, you know. Or the other thing is sea levels were, of course, much lower before the Ice Age, but they were not Mm 7,000 feet lower than they are now. So are we looking at natural formations that look like man-made structures or... Uh, are these indeed man-made structures? If they are man-made structures and they're ancient, how did they get down there in such mint conditions? So these questions have not been answered up to this point. And uh, I wouldn't think it's impossible that we're looking at an Atlantean civilization or maybe even something that the Maya did, although the Maya were not known for being uh, great seafarers. But nonetheless, maybe something... We don't. We just don't know. It's unfortunate. We just don't know what that right. is. It's it's something. It's either a natural formation that looks man-made, or it is man-made, but the process of getting it down there is unknown. Is the Eye of Africa related to Atlantis? Uh, that's very interesting. I don't know what the, that's. You're asking some very difficult questions. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that is or not. It might be. It looks just like it. It's amazing. It it looks somewhat like it. Yeah, it does. Um, In fact, it looks a lot like what you should be in Louisiana. Right. The Louisiana site, I think, is connected to Atlantis because a lot is known about uh, Poverty Point. And um, we know about the dates that are there, and that was very great people, and the, the resemblance to... Atlantis, Plato's Atlantis is very, very close. So I don't have any problem with that at all. That's that's terrific. The Eye of Africa, of course, they're saying it's a completely natural formation. Well, I don't know. I just don't know. Hmm. Um, wow. It's amazing some of the archaeology, the stuff that's out there that, that's been found but it's just not common knowledge. No, you have to really dig for it. And uh, that's what I try to do in my books. I've tried to present this information and back it up with a lot of source material and facts and write it uh, as though I'm writing it for myself, not for some kind of uh, club or somebody that's intellectually so removed from real life that you wouldn't be able to understand what they're talking about. So I'm just writing for ordinary people like myself. Mm-hmm. So, so what other places in America that are out there that I'm not aware of? I'm saying quite a bit. Um, one of the other interesting ones is in um, the American Southwest. Uh, this is a culture that didn't exist that long ago, less than a thousand years ago. And we're talking about the Four Corners area. And they call it that where four states come together. And um, the society out there, it was called the Anasazi. And they were they are, uh, were headquartered in an area called Chaco Canyon. 
Yeah. These places are, are very well known, and they were very great people. And their story is very vital to our own because it's it's so similar. They were a people that uh, created really a kind of an internet, if you can believe that, if you can imagine it. But they did the precursor to the internet a thousand years ago. They created a information system that could flash news over hundreds and hundreds of miles within seconds. And they did that through a series of beacons at nighttime and um, and highly polished mirrors and shiny materials during the day. So it was just amazing what they were able to do in terms of uh, kind of a proto-internet. Com- proto mm-hmm. um, they arrived in the American Southwest about a thousand years ago uh, with another people called the Hohokam. And the Hohokam were stupendous irrigation masters. They were managers of water. They were masters of water management that have hardly ever been excelled anywhere. They literally transformed that desert into a blooming paradise. The levels of their irrigation are so modern, even up down to the concrete-like material that they made, which still exists in some places. The Hohokam made an irrigation network that if you took it end-to-end, it would stretch from Phoenix, Arizona, past the Canadian border. That's how long their irrigation system was. (laughs) And uh, when their civilization collapsed, it didn't last too long. It only lasted less than 200 years. But when it collapsed... Um, it was an excessively violent affair, and uh, the, both the Hohokam and the Anasazi, but especially the Anasazi, were victims of genocide and cannibalism. Oh. It was a hideous end to uh, a civilization. It looks as though that the Hohokam just left. They tried to get out, and it seems like they probably made it. They went to Mexico and sort of blended in with the cultures there and sort of banished away the Anasazi they preferred to stay and they went into gated communities they became the cliff dwellers and they got starved out they died of starvation they were the lucky ones quite honestly died wow. of starvation compared do you, to the others do you think there was a race of giants in North America you know that, uh, I was uh, the word giant is uh evokes people that are, you know, 20 feet tall or well, something. I guess I've heard these guys were about like nine feet tall. Some of them had two yes, rows yeah, of teeth. That is, that is probably among the last things that I I found completely unacceptable for years. I thought that was just fairy tales until I read a book by a guy by the name of Dragoo, D-R-A-G-O-O, another mainstream archaeologist. And he was writing about early American high cultures and how in a number of these mounds were removed the skeletal remains of human beings that were excessively tall. And that shows that there were a people that were extremely tall. We're talking about, well, I think the the tallest woman that was found was uh, six feet, nine inches tall. And the tallest man found was a little under nine feet tall. So that's a whole other story, I guess. <laughs> that's an amazing thing. But yeah, there, 
it's it's not that much to be wondered at because um, the Patagonian giants, these are people that lived, and some of them still exist, uh, they lived in, um, at the very tip of South America, Tierra del Fuego, Patagonia, and um, there were people that uh, lived in a very cold climate and they had no clothes. They never wore any clothes, which is amazing when you consider how incredibly cold it is down there, but they never wore clothes. And they were known for being well over seven feet tall. And there were other examples that the Spanish said were close to nine feet. That is kind of apocryphal. Maybe it's true, but the Patagonians were nonetheless known for being very, very tall. Um, then you had the, the there was a, a an ethnic group within the Celtic peoples of Western Europe that were also noted for being excessively tall. Seven-footers were... Uh, not uncommon amongst them were not uncommon. It was not the majority of them. There's um, a famous burial site uh, in Austria, Salzkammergut. In Salzkammergut, that's where they found some of these Celtic burials that were astounding, where they found uh, a number of uh, male warriors that were well over seven feet. That's pretty, that's amazing. So there have been, um, in other parts of the world, this, I don't think you can call them races of giants. I don't know they were a whole race. Um, the group that I mentioned earlier were called the Adena. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I, fa I found just found in America that. back around 3,000 years ago. And they uh, were not a race of giants because most of them were, were not seven feet tall, but a lot of them were. And like I said, the tallest woman found was six feet nine. Um, but the Adena, I think they had maybe some kind of uh, some kind of genetic problem, because another uh, sub subgroup amongst the uh, Adena were uh, midgets and dwarfs. So here you have uh, the same people that are producing these really giant people, like seven footers or more, seven to eight footers, maybe even mm -hmm. nine feet, a little under nine feet. And uh, at that same time period, a number of um, deformed uh, dwarfish uh, Adena, the same people, were found who were very, very small. So th this indicates some kind of genetic problem, I think, that they were undergoing. I can't imagine what caused, caused it to take place, but nonetheless it happened. Wow, that's weird. So uh, it's not impossible to believe that uh, there were these much taller people, but I would say there was nobody that was, uh, you know, 20 feet tall or anything like that. Mm. But uh, seven footers, no doubt about them. When they start getting towards eight feet, that's kind of hard to believe, and especially the nine footers, although there are a terrific series of books written by Fritz Zimmerman. I can't recommend them enough. He is a superb independent researcher he doesn't just read books by far he doesn't he goes and visits all of these native american sites visits all of these pre-columbian sites personally goes there researches them photographs them his books are invaluable and uh he he, he definitely uh makes a strong case for uh, these native uh, these native peoples that were very very tall what was his name First name is Fritz, F-R-I-T-Z. Last name is Zimmerman, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N. He's been at it a very long time. He's very good at it. He wrote, uh, he, uh, his first book is called The 
Niflheim Chronicles, I believe. Very excellent. Uh, I found him. Yeah. He's good. Hmm. Maybe we can get him on a show. Oh, I would say definitely. He's not going to disappoint you. He's very good. <laughs> That's interesting. And he looks like he might be... Oh, I hope he's not working with this guy, L.A. Marzoli. I've interviewed him <laughs> a couple uh, if times. If you don't mind, I'm, uh, we can uh, <laughs> resume this conversation another time if that's all right with you. I really have to attend to something here that's sort of breathing down my neck. Oh, so, uh, no problem. I just got. But I, I enjoyed our our talk quite a bit. I hope it was worthwhile, and we should be able to do it again before long. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on. And just uh, before we wrap it up, though, tell my listeners where they can find you. Well, the best thing is, like, before Atlantis, if they want to read that, that's at Amazon.com. That, and they can see all the rest of my books there. All right. And I'll post a link to that in the notes of this episode so they can check it out. Oh, that would be great. I really appreciate it. All right. Awesome. Just hang on one second, and I'll play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.